We've gotten so lucky as a country in America at critical times when we were at an absolute political and economic breaking point. We got remarkable individuals who were able to somewhat reinvent the system. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches the ideas, policies, and strategies that can be to for a time populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. It looks as though we're going to have a new government in Germany soon, and it's a new edition of the old one, a grand coalition between Angela Merkel's center-right Christian Democrats and the center-left Social Democrats, who are much weakened. Now, whether or not this government happens depends on a vote by the membership of a Social Democratic Party. I actually think it's a little more likely that people will vote the coalition down than most observers seem to think, which could lead Germany into quite a serious political crisis. But more likely than not, the members will, in the end, hold the noses and vote for the Grand Coalition. Now, there's been a big debate in Germany over the last months about whether this Grand Coalition is bad for Germany and whether Social Democrats should refuse to enter it. I don't really have a view on this for a simple reason, which is that the problems that people worry about are much more structural than most commentators have recognized. It is bad when the two biggest parties in the country are in government together, when you don't have ideological coherence in the government because people who have been historical adversaries now have to rule together, when populists start to be right with the claim that there's no big differences between the establishment parties and that the only way to get the government out is to vote for extremists like the alternative for Deutschland. But the problem is that once populists are at 20-25% in the parliament, there is no alternative to it. If the Grand Coalition didn't happen and the Christian Democrats either had a minority government or cobbled together an ideologically incoherent coalition with the Green Party and the Liberals, we would essentially have a form of Grand Coalition as well. And if there's no government at all, we're only going to go to new elections in which, according to latest polls, the populists would do even better and we would start with exactly the same predicament from scratch. So this is one of the deeply worrying effects that happen when populists and systems of proportional representation start gaining 10, 15, 20, 25% of a vote. And I think it's going to be the new political normal in Germany for years to come. Now, it's a real pleasure for me to introduce the first in a little series of conversations that I want to have with people who are most squarely on the conservative end of a political spectrum. Jennifer Rubin was for many decades a lawyer in Hollywood before she started getting into opinion writing in the 2000s, quickly rose to be a major national voice, was a backer of the George W. Bush administration of John McCain during his presidential run of Mitt Romney, but has been really courageous and outspoken and smart and insightful in her critical commentary of Donald Trump all through the primary process and very strongly in the past year as well. She writes an amazing amount of material on her wonderful online blog, Right Turn for the Washington Post. And we just had a wonderful wide-ranging conversation about the future of a conservative movement, the nature of a Trump presidency, and how to stand up to him. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Nice to be here. You're an incredibly prolific writer. We're just discussing, you write about 10,000 words or something like that a week of the Washington Post. So you really follow the twists and turns of a Trump administration in, frankly, excruciating detail. Where do you think we're at with a Trump administration? Is he winning? Is he losing? Is he managing to subvert American democratic institutions? How worried should we be? I think we're in the middle. We're not at the beginning, and we're a long way from the end. But I do think that we have two phenomena going on and they are related. One is that he is losing support. He is down to the core true believers for whom no evidence, no facts really matter. He will probably have them to the bitter end whenever that comes. He will not lose those people. But the vast majority of the American public 
60%, 65%, which is a lot in American politics, has decided that this guy is not fit for office, that he possesses many qualities that are unacceptable in a president, and that they do believe that the investigation into Russian interference is not a hoax, as he claims, but is quite real. And I think the question as to where we are is that despite itself, Congress is allowing, at least for now, an investigation to go forward, and at least one House of Congress is conducting a credible bipartisan investigation that is working in parallel with Robert Mueller. Obviously not the House, it's the Senate. And kudos to Richard Burr, the chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, for taking this seriously. And I think we have seen with great rapidity and great exactness that Robert Mueller is moving through this investigation methodically in a deliberate fashion, making indictments, flipping witnesses, getting closer and closer, and finally into the inner circle of Donald Trump. And I do have confidence that whatever there is there to be found will be found. And if there isn't anything to be found, which I think at this point is rather unlikely, I, for one, would be satisfied when Robert Mueller tells us that. I am confident at this point that if there's something to be found and Robert Mueller is allowed to continue doing his job, it will in fact be found. I'm less confident, I suppose, of whether or not he will get to do his job. It's now obvious that Donald Trump considered firing him at various points. The attack machine against him and at this point, not just Robert Mueller, but the whole of the FBI is working quite effectively. He seems to have consolidated support among at least the House GOP. So are you confident that Mueller will be able to finish the investigation that we will get to the bottom of this, not 20 or 40 or 60 years from now, but within a politically relevant time frame? I'm confident of two things. One, that the Republicans are doing grave damage to our national security, to the oversight process, to the future efficiency and effectiveness of the FBI, that these things will far outlive Donald Trump and this will be part of his very dark legacy. So that part I am quite certain of. The other part is, will he be able to complete his task? I think so. I think Donald Trump has been convinced, and at least his White House counsel persuaded him, that to fire Mueller would really be a political storm that he might not be able to survive. He could make Mueller's tasks much more difficult. He is thinking up crazy theories for why he need not respond to a subpoena, which would be Mueller's last resort. Mueller may find it more onerous, more difficult. He might find more criticism than a normal investigation in a normal presidency would undertake. But I don't think he's going to be dissuaded. And I think it is also the case that because there are so many facts and so many witnesses and so many players, that when you lay it all out, we don't have to believe Michael Flynn, per se. Mm. We don't have to believe this or that witness. It will be the totality of the evidence, I think, that will be overwhelming because this was a campaign that was so intertwined with Russians to a degree no campaign in history has ever been. The thing that worries me about that is is sort of twofold. I mean, one is just that things that obviously seem to be red lines in the past have been crossed over the course of the last 12 months. And in retrospect, they didn't turn out to be red lines at all. They turned out to be yellow lines or green lines or whatever it is. We look back at them thinking, oh, how strange, apparently. You can break this norm, you can do this thing, and nothing that bad happens. And then we sort of looked ahead again at the events that that continue to hurl at us and said, well, the next thing that's crazy that's going to happen, that's going to be the end of it. And the whole thing played out all over again. The other thing is that it is at this point really difficult to keep track of what's happening. You know, part of my job is to follow those things. Not in as minute detail as you do. I don't write a daily piece, I write a weekly column. But that's, you know, minute enough. And I have real trouble keeping track of what is going on with the Russia investigation and all of those things. So I just wonder if those things in combination, where you keep redefining what actually is or isn't a scandal, 
And there's so much information out there that people sort of just have a sense that it's all gray on gray and, you know, there's probably some stuff, but who knows. Um, how do you get them to go back to saying, oh, this feels fresh and this is a scandal and this is unacceptable and at this point we need to drop him? The first, that is the ability of Trump to transgress and to transverse red line after red line is a function of the Republican Party. It is a function of those people for a whole panoply of reasons that they have decided to facilitate, to enable. So I now tell both my Republican and my Democratic friends, do not wait for the moment when Republicans will finally say, enough, that's not how it will happen. It will happen through the electoral process. It will happen in 2018. So what happens in 2018? Presumably you're imagining the Democrats winning the House or the Senate or possibly both. What then? Then I think we have not only the Mueller investigation being able to run its course, but confirmation and corroboration on a somewhat bipartisan basis, because I think at that point, some Republicans will cooperate once they're no longer defending the majority, that you will have something that looks much more like a consensus about what occurred. Not only the degree to which there was Russian interference and the degree to which this campaign was actively soliciting help or being willing to accept help, however you want to phrase it. And more important, there will be I think, an opportunity for broad-based understanding and support that the things he has done in office in and of themselves are not acceptable. They do constitute perhaps a crime, but certainly acts which in our political system, impeachment was designed to protect the country from. So I think as it should be, perhaps, it's not law that is ultimately determinative, it's politics. And the election has enormous significance. Now, as to the second problem, the problem of keeping up, boy, are you in good company. Um, <laughs> and I, who have to follow it every day, sometimes I get lost between the morning and the afternoon because five things have happened that have changed minutely. And all of the media has this problem, which on one hand gives Trump some relief because we've gone on to the next thing by the time he does the next two or three bad things that day. And it turns out that if you do one outrageous thing, then media can focus on it for two months and it becomes the defining thing of what you did and everybody understands the significance. If you do 50 outrageous things on 50 days, not only does not one little one of them define you, but everybody ends up being so outraged all of the time for good reason that people say, well, perhaps you guys just love being outraged. It's at one of those situations where one plus one plus one ends up being minus four. I could not agree more. And this is magnified by the nature of American media at this point, which is extremely fragmented, problem of social media, which is still feeling the influence of Russians. We saw this in the release the memo hashtag that was meant to induce Devin Nunes to release the memo. We know that this was amplified by Russian accounts and Russian bots. So those are unique problems. All I can do is try to do for my readers what I do for myself, mm. which is to kind of sift through the minutia of that day and decide what happened that is significant and how does this fit into the big picture. And here is where I think not only reporters, but columnists, opinion writers, think tanks can be extraordinarily helpful because the average person is incredible. They're not even confused. They're exhausted by it. Yeah. They're so confused that they don't want to expend the energy to get themselves unconfused. And I do not blame them. But I do think to have in real time people who are paid to pay attention to this thing, synthesize, explain, make connections, do some deep dives based on work that you or that others are doing is extremely important. And I think it's also important for lawmakers because we think, well, they're certainly keeping up. If you're 
somebody who's not, for example, on either of the intelligence communities, you have the same problem that we do. If you're a lawmaker, you have to keep up too. Right, right. So what we seem to be seeing here, right, is that it's difficult to keep up. It's difficult to understand the details. That there's sort of be social norms about what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And when somebody breaches the bill and everybody responds as though that was fine, people revise them. And so you gradually start to lose your standards and your compass. Obviously, one organization or one political party that has done that very strongly over the course of the last year is the Republican Party, which was at first horrified by the rise of Donald Trump, um, which is, you know, populated with people who are deep members of a conservative movement that, you know, I'm not a conservative, um, you can agree with or strongly disagree with, that had actual beliefs and ideals that have very little to do with what Donald Trump now stands for, right? So as somebody who was a member of that movement, and, and, and I believe still is, did it take you by surprise to see how people who probably in their own mind thought that they are animated by public policy and they're animated by a view of what's good and bad for America are willing to throw all of that overboard in order to become lackeys of Donald Trump? Well, I am no longer a Republican, but I do consider myself politically where I have always been, which is center-right. And the short answer is yes, I have been horrified. The number of never-Trump Republicans, if you will, those people who considered themselves Republican, had always voted Republican, who knew he was trouble at the beginning, knew he was trouble during the election, and have continued to oppose him now because he has done and been everything that we predicted is pathetically small. It is a fraction of a fraction of the party. It has virtually no representation in Congress itself because to one degree they have all accommodated themselves. And to the chagrin of those of us who do consider ourselves to be the never Trump, it has intellectually corrupted people in think tanks, people at the journals, people in universities, what we thought was the intellectual firepower, if you will, and the organizational might on the right. And I think we have underestimated three things. One is the degree to which tribalism infected both the right and the left, but that the right had the sense of victimization woe is me, we've been abused by the left. And although they don't like Trump, they like that he is hated by the same people that they have hmm. hated. And the allure of having a champion, and I'm not talking about the unemployed steel worker in Ohio, I'm talking about the guy who does economic policy at Heritage. Finally, we have someone who is just giving it to the other guys. Hmm. I'm on top. I don't have to take the intellectual and emotional abuse of liberal elites. So that's hmm. the first thing. The second problem is that the ability to rationalize one's role in the great scheme of things is tremendous. I have abided most of my life and certainly my writing life in the admonition that one doesn't bring up Hitler because that diminishes the importance, but one has to go for an appropriate analogy. And that is that profession after profession, institution after institution, acclimatize themselves to Hitler, both because they underestimated him and they believed they could control, hmm. direct, manipulate him. And although Donald Trump is not Hitler, and I want to be absolutely clear about that, the same mentality that the country needs me to be there because without me, they'd be far worse because I'm having some effect because I can think of horrendous things that he has not done that he might have done had I not been here is such a attractive narrative for people to allow them to do what they want to do, which is serve in government or have powerful positions that they have been able to rationalize almost everything. And I think as a psychological phenomenon, as a human phenomenon, I greatly underestimated that. The third is that I think I have come to terms, sadly, with the realization that some of the criticism on the left about the right was accurate. There is a much larger segment of xenophobia, 
of racism, of a sense of white grievance than I was willing to acknowledge in the past. And so the things that horrify me do not horrify them in the same way. Well, they maybe don't horrify them at all. And I think because so many of the tripwires for me are those beliefs in democracy, the American experience, immigration, that immediately set me off that it's not such an issue for these people. And therefore, they don't have that visceral reaction when he tries to demonize immigrants as gang members and murderers. It simply doesn't. There's sort of two ways, isn't there, of putting the point about the way in which the present political moment helps us to rethink the nature of a conservative movement of a Republican Party over the last 20 or 30 years, right? And one is to say that, well, perhaps the things that, you know, occasionally were subtext, but were never text, uh, actually drove much more than we realized. That it wasn't just the occasional Republican politician saying something xenophobic or saying some, you know, using racist dog whistles, but actually all along held more of a power within the movement and more of the attraction to a large number of the members of the movement, even if obviously not all of them, than we realized. Another point, and those two aren't mutually exclusive, is to say that perhaps also the power of the ideas themselves was much weaker than it seemed. That actually the church of deregulation and lower taxation and, and all of those things had a lot of worshippers that were there for different reasons. And that in order to rebuild any form of conservative movement, it would require people to actually not just distance themselves from the nasty things that have now become text and that used to be subtext, but also actually to sort of reinvent the liturgy itself, as it were, as a very labored metaphor now. I agree, yes and yes. And I think it has been somewhat difficult for my conservative friends and ex-friends to understand that those two things are going on simultaneously. And that, yes, the realization that, as you beautifully put it, that subtext is more text than I was willing to acknowledge is true. But that at the same time, both what plowed the way for Trump and what demands that people who consider themselves to be conservative or center-right, however you want to phrase it, those people who hold those ideologies have to look more critically at the intellectual bankruptcy of where the movement has been after 30 years, which is still stuck in the same dogma, still stuck in the exact same articulation of certain principles that are no longer suited to a 21st century with a whole slew of problems that Ronald Reagan never dreamed of and certainly Milton Friedman didn't have a chance to wrestle with. To put it in Milton Friedman terms, we have market failures all over the place <laughs> and we have market distortions all over the place. And there is a role for government and we can debate how much it is. But I think this view personified by, as the left used to call it, trickle down economics, that mm. if you just reward the rich, all boats will rise, has been disproven by history and disproven by experience. And to keep insisting that it is so is a certain intellectual and moral blindness. We have a serious problem, not just between rich and poor, but that same rich and poor divide overlays urban and rural, mm. overlays race, overlays a whole set constellation of qualities. And that we lack a unifying narrative, we lack a unifying culture, and we lack a means by which we can fill up the center. We've gotten way too sticky at the ends of the economic ladder, both at the mm. bottom and the top. And that those are, if not unique problems, problems that have really blossomed in the last decade. And Republican ideology has not responded to it in a meaningful way. That does not mean that I should, or conservatives should, or that it would be right to favor a massive social centralized welfare state. It does require, however, that you examine reality. The principle that you want more resources, more energy in the private sector 
does not necessitate that you never, ever raise taxes. No matter how many old people you are, no matter how much need you have, no matter how many wars you are in, that's madness. And it is simply a confusion between the principle, which is we want a dynamic private sector, we want greater self-determination, confusing that principle with a silly mantra that we will never, ever raise taxes. So let's talk about one of the obvious drivers of populism, not just in the United States, but also in other countries, which is sort of economic stagnation of living standards for ordinary people. The huge transition from, you know, in the post-war era, people just really feeling the life getting better because it's so blatant to a whole generation of people saying, you know what, my life isn't really becoming better. You're right that saying, well, we just have to cut taxes a little bit more and cut business taxes a little bit more, and that's going to take care of a problem because things will trickle down. That's clearly not an answer. I also agree with you, by the way, on the need for a really vibrant private sector and on the fact that in many areas, government is not the solution. But what does that then look like as an economic agenda? How do you take that seriously, that the old mantras from a conservative movement are not going to actually help improve people's lives and, and make them less worried about their ability to pay the bills and see the children succeed, but without going all of the way to the easy solutions, frankly, which is, well, why don't we expand the welfare state and why don't we at least forget the welfare state? We distribute a lot of money. There was a very brief moment, which I thought was the way out, and it turned out to be a flash in the pan. It was not a light at the end of the tunnel, but the flash in the plan. And that was the so-called Reformicon movement, mm -hmm. which grew out of an effort by AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, and others who looked for an agenda for conservatism that essentially espoused the notion that we should have a dynamic but limited government, not a small government, not an inert government, but a able, a competent, a assertive government to deal with problems that the private sector clearly could not. And that in the information age, in the age of globalization, there are more of those problems than there used to be. Mm -hmm. That still means that, at least for me, that conservative principles should be used in devising those solutions and creating attainable ends. For example, I think the joint projects on poverty that the Brookings Institute and AEI have done have come up with an extremely sensible and, in my mind, very conservative conclusion about poverty. And that is work is central to that. It's central to interrupting the so-called cycle of poverty. It's central emotionally essential, economically central, philosophically. That's a conservative principle that actually has been road tested in various places. Mm. They can actually find agreement on. And that is, I think, a higher calling for conservatives to look for those policy solutions which retain the essence of conservatism. We haven't really talked about what I think conservatism is, but that are willing to reimagine what that looks like in the real world. And that goes for foreign policy as well. Yeah. And it also has to recognize that you cannot simultaneously be for a huge national defense, a huge entitlement program, and massive tax cuts. Yeah. There are certain realities. Math is math. Conservatism is math in some respects. And the solution that we're just going to wave our hand and come up with some crackpot theory whereby tax cuts pay for themselves is wrong. It's dishonest and it's wrong. And so I think rethinking some of these mantras, rethinking, well, if we are going to have unemployment insurance, what should we be doing with that? Maybe we should be promoting physical mobility. Maybe mm. we should be paying for relocation, I'm referring to some of the work that Michael Strain and AEI has done. It's that sort of problem solving, looking at the issues, coming up with, I think, solutions that deploy conservative values and a conservative mindset is crucial. We also forget that for at least people like me, 
conservatism is more than simply a list of issues. It is a mindset. It should be a mindset that is true to the name. You conserve. You keep what is good and discard what is not. That you have a humility about our ability to augment and change human nature. That we have a respect for those institutions in civil society, um, which should provide much of the energy and much of the support in society. So how- It, it doesn't exactly sound like you're describing the Donald J. Trump administration. Exactly. And so that is why, in my mind, he is so not a conservative, because right. everything I just described is the antithesis. It's right-wing populism, it's authoritarianism, what he has, but it is not conservatism because conservatism has to be more and mean more, at least for me, than tax cuts and deregulation. So I'm tempted to keep grilling you on conservatism, but actually I, I, I want to ask a different question, which is about liberalism. There is, I think, a difference between the old conservative movement and or the old Republican Party and the current state of the Democratic Party. Uh, it seems to me that the old Republican Party, there was actually a big vision and there was quite a lot of discipline about what the vision entailed, what kind of policies it called for, what kind of policies it made unacceptable, say, increasing taxes. And it just turned out that, A, the mass of Americans who voted for the Republican Party didn't particularly care about any of those stances. And B, apparently, a lot of the people who are actually paid up members of the movement, whether they're congressmen or you know people at think tanks and so on, didn't seem to care about it very much either. There's a sort of parallel in the Democratic Party. It's a little different because I think there's a much less clear idea of what the grand vision is. There's a much less clear idea of what the big policies are the Democrats want to call for. But there is a little bit of a parallel, which is to say that there's a sort of set of attitudes towards the kind of policy the Democrats should pursue. A lot of it is reasonably technocratic. It's seeing particular problems and wanting to solve them in relatively straightforward ways. But that certainly is not capable of commanding enthusiasm among the general American population. And so it's actually subject to disruption in a similar way. It might be disrupted by a far less populist who says we should actually be much more hostile to capitalism and so on than we have been historically. It could also be disrupted in other ways. Having gone through that experience on the conservative side, what is your advice to Democrats who do actually want to preserve the vague space of their values? Say, we want more redistribution, we particularly care about less well-off Americans and so on, but we also want to preserve capitalism, we also want to make sure that there's a functioning market. How can they reinvent themselves in a way uh, that might preclude a similar fate? It's a wonderful question because I think you are right. There is a similar problem on the Democratic side, which is one reason why they ran a candidate who seemed so stale, so yesterday's right. news, that she was not offering anything that people hadn't heard a thousand times and it was all a blur to them. So I do think there is much to be learned. First of all, they can be on the lookout for narcissistic businessmen with bad hair. <laughs> but more seriously, I think they have to be able to do two or three things that the Republican Party was not able to do. One is to create a unifying narrative for people mm. that does not sound like a laundry list of special interest groups or constituent groups. They have to be able to recreate the American narrative of inclusion of a dynamic society in which, yes, we will help those to help themselves, but we can only succeed if we're firing on all cylinders and everyone is a participant. And so the ability to weave a unifying narrative so that the disaffected, the angry, the dispossessed do not feel that they are unlistened to. And they see, you know, the system isn't all bad. There's something in it for me if I mm. stick with these people. Yeah. So part of it is rhetorical and emotional that you have just, to... Just because I, I agree with that 100%. And I agree, actually, that Hillary Clinton failed to have that kind of narrative. And that's one of the reasons why she didn't get a lot of enthusiasm. It does feel to me as though Barack Obama did have that narrative and did do that. So I was wondering whether you would think of Obama as an example of that or you, thought, you think that he fell short of that. Um, I think... He was rhetorically pretty good in this regard, but I think because he was trapped with the same democratic machinery, he had the same 
policy limitations that Republicans face. And I think just as Republicans have to have a little bit more faith and a little bit more positive affirmation that government can do good and is necessary, on the left, there needs to be a greater understanding that a lot of the goals they seek cannot be done by government, and they have to be building conditions under which those other parts of society can flourish. And they have to think about incentivizing, they have to think about doing things in a less heavy-handed way if they want capitalism to survive, and that they have to be more targeted towards economic growth. They will not succeed as a protectionist party. The country will not succeed as a protectionist country. So what, what, what would you see as a protectionist political program? What would you see as a political program so that out of takes stagnation? Right. Right. Seriously, but is a program for growth. Okay, so bad protectionist policy would be we're going to pull out of NAFTA, we're going to put tariffs on, we're going to not do TPP, and we're somehow going to insulate ourselves from the world. Not going to work. Bad for the consumer, bad for producers, bad all around, and it's bad for our trading partners. So what do the Democrats do? They look and they see, you know, those Republicans, they've been right. You know, there's a lot of statistical evidence that trade doesn't cost jobs, that it's good for us, that it's good for consumers. We represent a lot of people who are lower middle class. Protectionism doesn't help them. It really hurts them. So we should be in favor of big markets. But unlike those miserable Republicans, they would say to themselves, we actually want to think very hard about the consequences and the downside. We have to come up with a much more flexible, much more comprehensive approach to the casualties of free trade. Yeah. And rather than demand at the next round of TPP that the so-called you know, trade adjustments be a whole big pot of money that goes to a labor fund or a whole big pot of money that gets divided into 27 different industries. We have to think constructively and long-term into how we can guide the country, how we can make the jump from one economic situation to the other. So this is why I actually think that there is great similarity between the center-left and center-right, mm -hmm. because they need from the right the appreciation of markets, and the right needs an appreciation that there is a social economic cost to extreme stratification that we cannot absorb as a country. And somewhere in the middle, we should be able to come in my nirvana, politically very difficult, but I think intellectually it's much easier than people would have imagined, to a concept of a dynamic, thriving economy with a flexible but active government. And I think there's not that much difference when you strip away a lot of these other issues to finding that balance. Democrats are going to go on a little bit more on the government side. Republicans are going to go on a little less. But I think if we approach at least domestic policy, we haven't talked about foreign policy that way. Um, by the way, I also think there's a convergence in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. But I think if we think in these ways, both Republicans and Democrats can do some reinvention and they won't wind up awfully far apart. I think you've staked out really convincingly, uh, or at least really engagingly, the contours of what that consensus would look like. Uh, and as you're saying, there would be a substantial amount of difference between the preferred policies of the center-left and the center-right in the scenario. But that, of course, has traditionally been the helpful yin and yang of democratic politics, that people on each side of the divide ideally see certain truths a little bit more keenly, but over time that can actually lead to a virtuous back and forth. I think institutionally, it is imaginable that the center-left will have at home. It's not guaranteed, and I think that Democrats have to do serious work of reinventing themselves, and that's true across the political spectrum from the far left to the moderate left, but it's certainly especially true for moderate Democrats if they want to retain control of a party. They have to actually have something to offer for people as a realistic vision of a much better future. It has to be a moderate politics of change rather than moderate politics of status quo, which is what Hillary Clinton ended up being. But that fight is winnable. It's not so difficult to imagine a future in which that's what the Democratic Party looks like in 2020, 2024, 2028. It is at this point more difficult to think of the Republican Party looking like that. And so you have arrived at the ultimate question. And on this, I disagree with some of my formerly 
Republican friends. I think that the vision that I am looking cannot come from the Republican Party. And I'm not sure the decision has been definitively made. It would be definitively made if Donald Trump were reelected, for example. But if they definitively make the judgment to pursue a white grievance, populist, ethno-nationalist party, then there is a vast stretch of at least intellectual territory, how many people this attracts, I don't know, that will be left barren and that it will be up to people like myself to help create, to help organize, to help inspire a movement that I think is true to the original conservative values. So to put it in a nutshell, you think at this point, the most realistic vision for a healthy political system, which obviously can't be a one-party state, is that Democrats manage to reinvent themselves. Perhaps Trump loses in 2020, Republicans reinvent themselves. That would be the best case scenario. You don't seem to think it's that likely. But that a new party essentially substitutes the Republican Party. The Republican Party self-marginalizes as an ethno-nationalist party, winds up 10-15% for polls, and the political party system ends up being a competition between a reinvented Democratic Party and a new center-right movement. Is that is that the idea? That is precisely right. That is the nirvana, according to Jennifer Rubin. <laughs> and I like it because it appeals to my sense of rationality. It appeals to my sense of the give and take of politics. It may be entirely unrealistic. It may be completely unattainable. And I think people like you and I, who are very much participants and enthusiasts in the world of ideas continually understate the importance of individuals and individual personality. Yeah. You cannot achieve this unless you have a vessel of someone who can capture the public imagination, not with a Venn diagram of the type that we have described, but on an emotional connectivity, yeah. but that has the intellectual and moral courage and creativity to then present this as a plan. We've gotten so lucky as a country in America at critical times when we were at an absolute political and economic breaking point. We got remarkable individuals who were able to somewhat reinvent the system. I think of FDR. Mm. He was able to reinvent American capitalism and government, not in a way that modern conservatives liked, but as an alternative to either right-wing or left-wing extremism yeah. in Europe and keep the thing afloat. I would say, arguably, that Ronald Reagan, who's a great admirer of FDR, did the same, that we had gotten to the point where we thought the country was ungovernable, that we had sunk into this Carter malaise, that we expected communism to forever be with us. The notion that the Berlin Wall could come down was completely foreign. And you had someone who had a vision, but also had enough either common sense or empathy for the other side to not take us over the cliff. And unfortunately, when we reached loggerheads this time, we took someone hmm. and we chose someone who's prepared to take us over the cliff. Yeah. And we're now going to pay the penalty. And the name of the game is to pull on the reins so we don't go over the cliff, see if there's another horse to jump onto, I'm sending a very bad metaphor, or to see if we can get a new horse and turn this thing around and go in a slightly altered direction. I think both conservatives and Democrats have become prisoners of the status quo. Hmm. And it's a psychological phenomenon. It's very hard to imagine what has never yeah, been. Yeah. So history repeats itself except when it doesn't. Yeah. And the difficulty of imagining something new has always been the challenge for modern democracies. It's hard to anticipate threats. Who thought people, 19 people were going to hijack an airline, two airlines, three islands, and try to do great damage. And it has always been the benefits of modern democracies, of 19th, 20th century democracies, that they were specially suited to undertake these challenges and threats. It's only in a democratic free society that you have the flexibility, the intellectual dynamism, the entrepreneurialism to think our way and feel our way through that. So Donald Trump is particularly dangerous because he is impeding the very things we will need to help find our way out. A tolerance of dissent, a 
spirit of entrepreneurialism in which business is not in the hand of government and government is not in the hand of business, but they act as counterweights to one another. So he is not only eating away at democratic norms and institutions, but he's eating away at the flexibility and the strength of a democracy that is going to help us weather this storm and other storms. So one of the things we'll need is an ability for people who disagree with each other, who might disagree with each other quite deeply on some policy issues, to see themselves as and to see each other comrades in a struggle for preservation of the same political system and people who who are united by a deeper commitment that goes beyond policy. Now, I won't surprise you when I say that most of the listeners to this podcast probably are to the left of you, and I'm sure a good number are considerably to the left of you. What would you say, from your perspective as a never-Trump Republican, uh, who no longer considers himself a Republican, to them about what is required for us to build that culture together? How is it that all of us can help you be a member of that coalition? Because frankly, if we're not able to have people like you in the coalition, the thing is not going to work. It's a wonderful question. And I think the first thing we have to do is stop the historical archaeology. If the first reaction of the left is, well, we wouldn't have had George W. Bush if it wasn't for Jennifer Rubin, the conversation ends. We are where we are. I'm not a big fan of you know, how much of this was a reaction to Barack Obama, how much of it was the fault of the Wallace rump of the, you know, white working class. We are where we are. And I think that realization that not only we are where we are, but we are both in trouble. We have the boat is leaking. It's got a big hole. And if you're going to pick a fight with me about who made the hole, we're going to sink together. So I think it's a recognition that however we got here, we have a mutual problem. The second, I think, is the willingness and the ability to prioritize, to not, for the moment, get absorbed. And I find it hard to say this without meaning to discount these concerns. But the highest calling right now, the most important issue is not the top marginal tax rate. It's not even the Paris Accord. It's something much bigger than that. It is the survival of a rule-based democratic republic. And that unless we fix that, unless we baby-proof, (laughs) Trump-proof the democracy. Giant baby-proof. Yes, giant baby with little hands. Um, (laughs) Unless we do that, no one's going to get any of that stuff. And that stuff on the second level I will be delighted to get back to the point where Yasha and Jennifer can debate those sorts of issues and just how big the state should be and how much we should be driven by the profit impulse. But we're never going to get there unless we can pitch in. So I think some forgiveness, amnesia, however you want to look at it, a sense that we're not going to hassle one another about the second order issues and The third is, I think, an ability to recognize that a lot of the preconceptions about the other side were wrong. Mm. I will say I have become so accustomed to the right-wing mantra that the left does not care about the rule of law, the left doesn't care about the Constitution, it's all about power, that I believe that. Now, one possibility is I was right and they've changed their tune. Another is... No, it it was really a gross characterization. And in fact, the left has played by the constitutional rules to a much greater extent than the right has, at least of late. So that I now see that, you know, the people on that side are really aligned with me much more closely on some of these very fundamental issues. The invention of courts, the means of free press, the value of a a political civil service, the value of truth, that there really are people on the other side who believe that. And once you do that, I think a lot of the other difficulties melt away. And there are opportunities, perhaps more now on the intellectual, on the civil society front than among politicians, but we'll get there perhaps, but that there are these opportunities. And so when, for example, 
Congressman Nunes does something preposterous. And you have people from the Bush administration, people from the Clinton administration, people from the Obama administration, speaking with one voice in terms of the necessity for a regularized, apolitical Justice Department and a sane, fact-driven oversight process, that that gives me hope that there are these things that are really important and aren't just theoretical, but are happening right now every day. And as we discussed earlier, five times a day, 10 times a day, that can command our attention. And I think it's a willingness to forget the past. I think it's an understanding of what we share. And it's a mutual understanding that we really are in a crisis situation, a crisis of Western democracy. That's a wonderful summary. One thing that I wrote in, on the night of the election is that it would now be all of our goal to go back to the moment when people who are on the left and the right, but who are both in favor of democracy and horrified by Trump, can go back to being adversaries, where those are the poles of a political system. But I think I would add something else to that today. And obviously in that choice of word, adversary, it was implicit, but I didn't mean enemy. But I think hopefully this experience in the very best case scenario can teach us to be the best kinds of adversaries, which is adversaries who actually do recognize that not everybody on the other side acts in bad faith, just not everybody on our own side acts in bad faith. Um, there's a lot of people who do act in bad faith and who are genuine in their beliefs and sincere in their desire to make the world a better place. So I think there's no better encapsulation than that, than our conversation, and than, than, than all of what you said over the last hour. Um, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. My Jennifer. absolute pleasure. What a nice note to end on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Hack into the Twitter account of the Russian Foreign Ministry and tell all of their followers about the virtues of The Good Fight. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.